0: I've decided to delay sec- or, um, delay Amos for a few weeks, so we're going to get into 2 uh, Timothy for what I would describe as a lightning study. Of course, a lightning quick study in my case, it, it may not be what most people would call lightning, but we're going to take our time working our way through 2 Timothy for a few weeks. This morning we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 1 through 7. Didn't mean to terrorize. <laughs> well, what do you do, right? 2 Timothy chapter 1 verses 1 through 7 this morning. Before we start, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we can enjoy your word, enjoy worshiping you, singing songs of praise and rejoicing, songs that remind us as well that we are desperate people in need of a gracious and loving God. And so, Lord, I pray you'll help us this morning as we consider the opening comments of Paul to Timothy, that we will um, be reminded of your grace and at the same time reminded of your call to us and also reminded of who we are in light of who you are. So open our eyes and help us to see, draw us to worship you, warm our hearts with your love. With your Spirit, in Your Name. I pray. Amen. Before we read the actual text, a couple little pieces of background. Paul is writing to Timothy. It's the second letter. Timothy is not an apostle. He is not a uh, a disciple, as it were, as in the technical sense of things. Um. But he is uh, he is certainly a devout follower of Jesus Christ. Um, We could argue he's a disciple, but not a disciple as in the twelve. Sort of mean. Uh, He's someone who has come to faith in Christ through Paul's ministry, evidently. And he has followed Paul, followed Paul's teaching, been committed to the truth, is a true worshiper of Jesus Christ. Paul writes to Timothy in both letters, and seemingly, it's interestingly enough, seemingly implies that he is somewhat unique among believers. Shouldn't be that way, but somewhat unique. Now, not completely unique because there are other people referenced as well. But he's somewhat unique in that Paul is writing to Timothy saying that he is, in effect, an incredibly faithful one. He is deeply in love with Jesus. He is deeply enthralled with his Redeemer. He is deeply enthralled with an understanding of who Christ is. He is actively in pursuit of knowing Jesus and growing deep in Jesus. Now, I would present to you that Paul's perspective is that not that ought not to be an anomaly. It ought to be the norm. But at the same time, it is somewhat of an anomaly, especially in 2 Timothy. But even in 1 Timothy, it comes across that way. So we find in, in, in this introductory message that Paul is writing to Timothy. We find out right away that Timothy is not just a normal person. Now, he is normal, but he's not a normal person in that Paul, before we actually read the text, You'll notice in verse 2, he says, to Timothy, and then he says, to Timothy what? What does he say? My beloved one, or my beloved child. Which probably means that Timothy actually came to faith in Christ under Paul's ministry. He's a direct convert of Paul, as it were. Now, it may not mean that. It may be more the idea that Paul, that Timothy grew up through Paul's ministry. He faithfully interacted with Paul's writings and his teachings and grew from infanthood, as it were, to adulthood spiritually. Or as Ephesians put it, from being a little child to being an adult in Christ. Paul, either way, looks at Timothy with a father's love. He looks to Timothy as if if whether in reality, spiritually, he came to faith in Christ under Paul or just grew under Paul's ministry dramatically. He looks at him as a child, his child. So can I just start off, after 14 years of ministering here at What was Vincent Baptist Church and now Redeeming Grace Baptist Church? Can I just be presumptuous enough to call you my Timothys? I don't know if that's being presumptuous or not, but I've seen a number of you really grow in Christ, not because of me, but just just because God has used my teaching in your life, as well as others, of course. And, and in some cases, many cases, personal ministry in your life as well, that's not on me, it's God's grace, right? God's grace and mercy that he would use this grossly imperfect tool that he has called to himself. So could I, along with Paul, as he writes to Timothy and calls him Timothy, my child, can I say that it's almost as if you're all my Timothys? Does that make sense? That's my approach as I approach the text. Because I think what he has to say to Timothy is something that any pastor who has ministered to a group of people can also say. And I think it's that important. This is familial stuff. It's family stuff. As Paul writes to Timothy. And some of the things he says to Timothy are hard to hear. Not because Timothy is in error so badly, but because... Timothy needs to be reminded, just like Paul needed to be reminded. You need to be reminded, just like I need to be reminded. Timothy needed to be warned, just like you need to be warned, just like Paul needed to be warned, just like I need to be warned. Does that make sense? Timothy needed to be encouraged, just like you need to be encouraged, just like Paul needed to be encouraged, just like I need to be encouraged. But it's much more of an intimate encouragement. It's much more of an uh, intimate exhortation. It's much more of an intimate um, uh, warning and call than a normal one. It's very familial, and I think it's important that we hear that. Family, this is family speaking, and so it's good that we hear these things. So Paul starts out in verse 1, and I'm just going to read through verse 7 this morning, and he says this, Paul. An apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child. Grace, mercy, and peace, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as I re, as I did my ancestors. I'm sorry, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Verses 1 and 2 are his introduction. He reminds Timothy that he's the apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. It's based upon the reality that Paul has found life in Christ. Christ has moved by the power of the Holy Spirit in Paul's life, and we know the story so well, right? The road to Damascus, dramatic and powerful conversion. He has life because Christ gave him that life. It is in Christ Jesus. And again, he writes to Timothy, his beloved child. And his first statement to Timothy in this introduction is grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I want to stop on that one for just a second to say this. What Paul is really saying is this. Timothy... You don't need what you think you need. That's what he's saying without saying it. We all have a list of needs, right? Don't we? I mean, I just bought a house. I've got a list of needs. It's called a shopping list of things I need to get for the new house. I need to get a lawnmower. I need to get a leaf blower. Eventually, I need to get a snow blower. I think I'm going to escape the need this year for it until fall, hopefully. Still holding my breath. I need to get some LED lights to replace the incandescents and a number of other things I need to get. I got a long list of things I need to purchase. We call them needs. We have needs that we think of as needs. I need to be loved by my wife, I need to be loved by my. Husband, I need to have my kids obey me. I need my my job to go well. I need to get a promotion, I need to get a raise. We throw the word need around a lot don 't we and and at some level, rightfully so, but in a lot of levels, not very well. what Paul, in effect, is saying to Timothy right off the bat is. Without actually declaring it this way, he's saying, here's what you need. Let's boil it all away. And once all the boiling is done, Timothy, my prayer for you is grace, mercy, what does he say? Grace, mercy, and peace. Ultimately, at the end of the day, in his greeting, isn't that exactly what he's saying? To Timothy, here's what you need. Here's what I want for you. Here's what this whole book is about, as it were. God's grace to you. God's mercy to you. And God's peace to you. You see, because in reality, let's be honest with with each other and ourselves, in effect, should we not interpret our lives according to these three in a very real way? Should we not view the good and bad that comes into our life at every moment of every day from the perspective of God's grace, God's mercy, and peace of God? And as we start thinking about our lives from those perspectives, won't that change everything? Like when something bad happens to us, what's our natural inclination? It's okay, it doesn't bother me at all. I actually love babies crying. I think it's awesome. I can speak louder, although I, I'm convinced I can't. I can't over over shout a baby's scream. I think I will lose that one. Um, but when something bad happens to us, we typically think about it in all the wrong ways, don't we? We typically think about it from the perspective: if only this bad thing wouldn't have happened, or if only I could get past the bad thing, then life will be. Good once again, right? Or great once again. Well, Timothy's going through some really significant difficulties. He's experiencing a lot of rejection. He's experiencing a lot of hatred. He's experiencing a lot of resistance in the church. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he's warm, it's going to show itself more and more and more. And what Paul is starting out with in verse 2 is, this is the interpreter. And it's actually multifaceted because it's, it's the grace of God, but it's the, grace, it's the God of grace. Because it is God who gives us grace, right? And if God is the source of and is constantly showing grace to us, which he is if we're in him, then what Paul, in effect, is saying without, without actually using these words, he's saying this is the interpreter of, of life. This is the interpreter of the events of our lives. This bad thing that's happening to us, it's about God's grace. It is the evidence of God's grace to us. That doesn't mean we can understand how it's being the evidence of God's grace, right? But we walk by what? Faith, not by sight. With regard to the events that happen in our lives. And that's why Paul starts it all off by saying grace and mercy and peace. Not in the absence of the storm, but in the midst of the storm. Because Timothy's in the midst of the storm. He is. And what Paul, in effect, is saying is, I think about you, Timothy, my beloved child. My child who I love to death. What I want for you more than anything else is grace, mercy, and peace. But, But behind the lines here, it almost is not... What I want for you is grace, mercy, and peace primarily, but it's also your understanding of and your realization of and your interaction with it in the stuff of your life. That you will see it. Not that it will be there because it's promised, right? To his, his children, isn't it? Grace, mercy, and peace is promised to his children, right? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's peace, right? He's promised to pour out grace and mercy to us. His mercies are, what? New every morning, grace is his faithfulness. So certainly he's, he's talking about the actual reality of the grace, per, mercy, and peace. But the idea behind the lines is that Timothy will understand it. That Timothy will, will connect the dots and see it not primarily as bad, not primarily as good, Not primarily as comfort and ease, but he'll primarily see it as this is, in God's way, his grace to me. The God who I trust in this event is being gracious. The God who I love and who, more importantly, loves me in this event, in this circumstance, is being merciful to me. Not that I deserve it, right? That in the event that is, is transpiring, that's unfolding as my story is unfolding before me, mostly out of my control, right? Let's be honest. Most of our story is unfolding outside of our control. That, that I can understand and realize what? Peace. That's, by the way, surpasses what? I'll understand your comprehension. That I can live in the midst of this, peacefully resting on the reality of the grace and mercy of God and the God of grace and the God of mercy. And that's the foundation of everything that Paul is going to say now. So it's very important that we get that. Because from there, he goes on and, he's, and he begins to talk about Timothy in really warm ways. Very, if I may use the term, familial ways. Very loving ways. Very intimate ways. Notice what he says I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan the flame, in the flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So he says in three and following, he says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, because his ancestors served God, too, even though it was pre, pre-Christ coming to this earth. Some, some of Paul's ancestors served well, didn't they? There's a few. He's not talking, I don't think, about those who didn't serve well. He's talking about the few that did serve well in the Old Testament. His ancestors, because he's Jewish. There are some who served well, who didn't get distracted and become pharisaical. There's some who didn't get all caught up in the law, but caught up in the God of the law. Who understood they were desperately in need of grace, mercy, and peace? Not how well they did. Correct. So he remembers them sec- he remembers Timothy secondly in verse three, or lastly in verse three, constantly my prayers day and night. Can I just say this real quickly? And then we're gonna go off of this. One of the evidences, if I would just throw this out there, one of the evidences that we are people recognizing and reveling in God's grace, mercy, and peace is that we find ourselves praying for other people that are recipients of his grace, mercy, and peace. Does that make sense? We don't find ourselves praying for one another constantly. Thankfully, because that's the idea he's praying thankfully probably because we've forgotten about grace, mercy, and peace and more importantly we've forgotten about the God of grace God of mercy, God of peace that's why because I'm convinced it's not the, it, there's no command here it's not that I gotta, I've got to pray longer i got to pray harder Right. this is what happens this is what happens When I'm fellowshipping in grace, mercy, and peace, I'm thinking about things, and I'm thinking about my life, I'm remembering my life from these perspectives. And I'm remembering the God of grace, mercy, and peace. And I find myself rejoicing with those who are also co-recipients of grace, mercy, and peace, and praying for them with thankfulness. Verse 4, he goes on and says, I, As I remember your tears, Timothy's tears, I suspect the tears are, can anybody guess why? What do you think? Okay, well, Timothy, yeah, possibly, but I think it's more when Paul left him, right? Because he was with Paul, right? He's growing under Paul's ministry, and now he's separated from Paul's writing to Timothy, And Paul and Timothy were so close to one another. They were so intimate with one another. They rubbed shoulders. They rubbed their lives together all the time. And now they're separated. When Paul said, I'm going on the road, Timothy was broken by that. He wanted to be with him. He wanted to be with him. He wanted to fellowship with him. He wanted to be reminded again of the beauty of God's grace, mercy, and peace and the God of mercy, and the God of grace, God of peace. As I remember your tears, I long, Paul says, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Again, let me throw this little curveball, because I think this is really instructive. We're just we're breaking the, te- the text apart piece by piece. He longs to see him. Did you catch it real quick? As I remember your tears, I long to see you. He, therefore, the tears are because they don't, he doesn't see them. Uh, Timothy doesn't see Paul. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Can I just pause on that for a second and ask you a quick question? What do you think the joy is he's talking about? You think the joy is just that he can hang out with Timothy again? That they can go bowling together? that they can go uh, biking together, go running together, go exercise together, or something like that? Do you think that's what it is? What do you think? What do you think the chance of that is? What? Yes. It's so that they can fellowship together in the faith. Isn't that right? And Paul's desire to teach him, and as we saw in previous weeks, and learn from him, right? That they can that they can have great joy, if I may fold the whole text together, if they can ha- so they together can have great joy in grace, mercy, and peace, right? And the other three parts of the equation, the God of grace, mercy, and peace. That's the picture here. I remember the tears you had, Timothy, when I left you. And rightfully so, because it was connected to Christ, right? It was connected to God. It wasn't just we had a great time together, and now we're leaving one another, and I'm crying over that. Does that make sense? Instead, it is... When we were together, we reveled together and built up each other, reveling together in God's grace, mercy, peace, and and the God of those three. And now I look forward to the time when we can once again get together so that we can renew that reveling once again, that exaltation together, that co-exhortation and that co-worship together. Make sense? Can I ask you a quick question? Just a quick, small little question. When was the last time you experienced that? When was, that, when was the last time you had someone in your life that you could say, that describes my relationship with that person? That's, that, that's it. I never could quite put it into words before, but that's it. That's that relationship that was summed up by not our commonalities, not our differences. It was summed up by grace, mercy, and peace, and the God of those three. And when we are together, we reveled. You know what I find too often? Most Christians don't have that relationship with anybody. With anybody. I mean, no friends like that, no spouses like that, no siblings like that, no anything. And i got to be honest with you. When I think about that, and I try to connect with the rest of the scriptures, and I see what the rest of the scriptures say about how we are to build one another up in Christ, right? Exhorting, encouraging, helping, calling one another to these things. And that's the theme, isn't it? That's one of the major themes of the scriptures. And yet, how many of us have friends that way? How many of us have acquaintances that are that way? How many of us have spouses, siblings that way? You know why we don't? Here's why we don't, because we've forgotten about grace, mercy, and peace. We've forgotten about the God of those three. That's why. And so we'll go day after day, week after week, month after month, in some cases year after year. And we'll build significant relationships, deep, abiding relationships, it has very little to do with Jesus. It has very little to do with grace and mercy and peace of God and the God of those three. It has very little. And then when those people leave our lives, we grieve and we weep. But for all the wrong reasons. Right? For all the wrong reasons. And ultimately, it happens at, at death, doesn't it? How many of us have been to funerals where people have wept? Anybody? Like we all have, haven't we? Repeatedly we've been to funerals where people have wept. And yet, have you been there to those funerals where people were Christians? They named the name of Jesus. And yet, if they have an open microphone time, what, what is talked about? as people reminisce over those that person and their experiences in life with that person, what's talked about typically? What kind of things? What they've done, okay? What else? How much they'll be missed, and what else? Oftentimes it's things like their sports, their job, their family, their laughter, their humor, right, their hobbies, Right, and that was talked about, I and mean, those are the type of things, isn't it? When was the last time you heard anybody at a funeral, for example, when they have an open microphone time and people go start going to the mic and they start talking? You know what, Chuck Wagon. Nobody here, Chuck Wagon. So it works. Chuck Wagon. You know, I just gotta say, more than anything else. He was like my spiritual father. He opened my eyes to Jesus. The, the the Holy Spirit used him as a tool to transform my thinking about this or that or so. How many of you ever heard that in a in a funeral? Very seldom, though, right? It's very rare. It's horrifying, isn't it? It's incredibly rare. And then think back on your life. Most of us are old enough to have had many, many people leave our lives, right? We have, haven't we? I'm not talking death. I'm talking about just move. Leave. End of college, end of grad school, someone quits their job and leaves, moves away, whatever the case may be. They were single, you were single, they got married, life changes, right? Whatever it is. Ask yourself a real important question, what do we weep over? Oh, you may not have actually shed tears, what were you sad over? Were you sad over the God of grace, mercy, and peace, and how that person helped you? To understand and to worship? Or is it something else? And then, second question along these same lines is this. More important question, because up to this point in time, what have we been talking about? We've been talking about somebody else, haven't we? Right? Now let's talk about ourselves. So, can I just ask you an easy question? Do you have any relationships where you actively, regularly, theme of the relationship? Are doing everything you can to help someone along the path of understanding grace, mercy, and peace, and the God of those three? Do you? I would argue what Paul says here is there's no greater joy than that. Like, it's like supreme joy. Supreme joy is together with others f- discovering, being reminded of the God of grace, the God of mercy, the God of peace, and what that grace, mercy, and peace entail and what it looks like with your skin on it. There's no greater joy than that kind of worship. Anything like that going on? it's really easy for us to say, yeah, Steve, there's not much of that going on towards me, right? That's really easy. Yeah, nobody's really doing that with me. That's not the question. See, the real question is not that. The real question is, am I so caught up with God that I just want other people to know the God of grace, mercy, and peace? Other believers? Because that's Paul's primary focus in all of 2 Timothy and 1 Timothy is towards believers, not really towards unbelievers, towards those who claim to be believers. Am I, are you, someone who says, come what may, even if nobody else is like this, because that's what Paul's going to say in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Even if no one else is like this, I'm going to be after the joy that comes via knowing. And I'm going to do what I can to help people to know that God of grace, mercy, and peace. And that's exactly where Paul has been living. And so is Timothy. And Timothy is kind of like the non-apostle example of what it means to be mature in Christ. What it looks like to be mature in Christ. See, we typically screw up the whole process by thinking that being mature in Christ means I don't do the things I used to do. But really being mature in Christ is reveling in the God of grace, mercy, and peace. And then helping others to revel in the God of grace, mercy, and peace. And certainly I would do that, right? If I'm reveling in the God of grace, mercy, and peace, won't I desire more than anything else to help others revel in the God of grace, mercy, and peace? the question isn't primarily are others helping you revel in, find your greatest joy in, God, in the God of grace, mercy, and peace. The real issue is, am I someone who is? Just like Ephesians says, we looked at it numerous times, he doesn't say that others should speak to you and help you. It says you should love. We're not called, in other words, anywhere in the Scripture to be loved. We're called to love because we're already loved right we're loved by God the God of grace mercy and peace and so if we're being loved by the God of grace mercy and peace it makes sense that we're going to find our greatest joy in that because his love is going to be greater than any other love I can receive from anybody right no one can match that love we do revel in love right when you're loved by somebody, you revel in that, right? When you love someone, you revel in that, don't you? You guys revel at all? Just a little bit? Of course you do. Of course you do. I mean, she's beaming over here just by me asking a simple question. Of course. That love is nothing compared to the love of Christ. Nothing. It is. best, it's a, just a, a dim reflection. We love because He first loved us. It's a derivative love. It's derived, at best, it's derived from the love of Christ. So certainly, whatever joy we have in our earthly love, at best, is a dim reflection, a dim derivative of the love we're receiving from the God of grace, mercy, and peace. Unless we're looking at these loves as isolated from Christ, which is a whole other issue. So I spent a little too much time on that. Verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first with your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. And the reason why Paul says I'm sure is because he remembers Lois and Eunice. And he remembers Timothy for who he, was, who he was when he was with him, but he's no longer with him. So I'm say, he's saying, I'm assuming, I'm, I'm, I'm confident at some level that that love remains. Or the faith remains, I'm sorry. I'm sure it dwells in you. And the reason why he says that is, why do you think? Well, I think he says, I'm sure it dwells in you still. He knew it did before. But he's, he's saying in absence, I'm sure it still does. Why do you think he says that? Yes, absolutely, because he is absolutely confident that whom the Lord gives Jesus Christ, he loses none. He preserves those who are his. And he says, I'm sure that faith is still with you. We can't spend any more time on that than that, but I just want to point it out to you. Verse 6, for this reason. We get down to the core of the whole point. For this reason, he says, verse 6, For this reason I remind you, Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. Verse 6. For this reason I urge you to fan into flame the gift that's been given to you. And Paul goes on and says, By my laying on of my hands on you. Now, I would argue he's talking about gift is not some form of I think contextually this makes the most sense. It is not some sort of special gift like Timothy. God, God through Paul gave Timothy the gift of preaching, say for example, or the gift of hospitality, or you know those other whatever gifts you know other gifts that are referenced throughout the scriptures. And I don't think that's what he's talking about at all. The gift he's talking about there. Is the gift of salvation. It's the gift of being a recipient of God's grace, mercy, and peace. Now, it's interesting here, first of all, let me just say, as, as someone of the side, this idea of him laying on hands is, you know, this is an apostolic ministry that Paul's involved in. We're not involved in that apostolic ministry, right? That's not our ministry, but our ministry is to proclaim the truth. But the gift that he's talking about here is the gift of salvation, the gift of God's grace to be saved, to be taken from death to life. And what Paul tells Timothy, a man who he is sure is still faithful, just like Lois was and Eunice was, the man he knew before when they hung out together that they could come together and rejoicingly glorify Christ together, glorify the God of grace, mercy, and peace, and did all the time he writes to Timothy, at the same time, there is a tendency among us to do what? What's that? To grow cold. There's a tendency among us, isn't there? To do what? To obtain a hard heart versus a soft heart. There's a tendency, isn't there? There is a tendency to find ourselves being duped by the world, duped by by. Vanity Fair, as it were, as is described in Pilgrim's Progress, which, by the way, as an aside, I always find it interesting that at Reading the the outlet store, the outlet mall there is called Vanity Fair. I've always found that really intriguing. Um, be that as it may, there is a tendency, right? There is a siren song that the world is screaming out all the time. You have not yet found joy but you will if you just come to Vanity Fair. You will if you just follow what we say. And it's because of that, Paul tells Timothy, fan the flame. And I find that one really interesting because, again, going back to what I already said, we typically find ourselves saying, well, you know what? No one really loves me, or no one is helping me to to experience that joy. No one's really reminding me of the grace, mercy, and peace of God and the God of those three. As if it somehow gives us the pass. You know, no one, no one is really ministering to me. Use whatever terms you want to. Paul doesn't write to Timothy and say to Timothy, you know, Timothy, you're alone now. You were with me, and we were ministering to one another and helping, but now you're all alone. And I understand the struggles. And, you know, it, yeah, it's kind of hopeless. you got a lot of opposition. There's nobody really loving you. So, you know, yeah, it's off the table now. No, what does Paul say? I'm not there anymore. You're all alone, physically speaking. What do you do with that? Well, just mope around and complain and gripe. Is that what you do? Well, that's what we do, right? But what does he tell us to do? Paul says, What? Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he says, Timothy, now that you're alone, here's what you do: fan the flames of the gospel. Where? Where? Within you! Fan the flames. Phantom! Have you ever have you ever tried to start a fire with uncooperative wood? Charlie's laughing already. You ever tried to start a fire with uncooperative wood? It's hard. Is't it? It's Green, It's wet. maybe it's punky. It's hard. So what do you say? Yeah, well, forget it. We'll just freeze to death. Nobody does that. But spiritually we do, don't we? We do it all the time. Well, this is kind of hard. Yeah, well, I'll just go ahead and die spiritually. What? You are green wood. You realize that? You are punky wood. You are wet wood that doesn't want to light. You realize that? You are. So am I. This side of glory, that's who we are. You see, there's no need to. Last night I started a fire, first fire in our, our new house. And I didn't have any wood, so I went out and I bought one of those packets of kiln-dried wood, you know, for six bucks. It's a rip-off. But anyway, I brought it home. I cut open up the plastic bag. And it started right off. It was wonderful. It was beautiful. It was like the best of all worlds. I've never started a fire that easily in my life. It's like me, that is worth six bucks. <laughs> That's not you and me. That's not us at all. I didn't have to fan anything. Nothing. I just put it there, lit it, done. Ooh, 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 ooh. Just sit there and enjoy the fire. I spent plenty of time with wet, nasty, not wanting to burn type of wood. You know what you do? Get down your hands and knees, and you start blowing, and you start blowing. You start fanning, and you keep fanning, and you keep blowing, and you keep blowing, and you get a fire going. And as soon as you stop, what happens? It starts going out right away, doesn't it? Because that's not very good wood. That's you. That's me. So what do you got to do? You get right back down there, and you start blowing again, don't you? You start fanning again, and then what starts happening? You start coughing. You start getting lightheaded, right? And so you stop because there's a flame. And then what happens? It starts going out right away again, doesn't it? And so you've got to get back down and do it again. Now, in Paul's day, this was really an important issue. Today it's not because usually a campfire today or a fire in the fireplace is like a convenience usually. Isn't it? Charles, when you, when you were heating with wood in your house, it wasn't the convenience, was it? Yeah, it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you had to work at it and work at it and work at it and work at it. Exactly. Because if you don't, you know what's going to happen. Frozen pipes, complaining family, everybody's cold. It's a mess. Does that make sense? Because of sin, that's who we are. We're wet, punky wood that doesn't want to burn. We are not nice, dry, hardwood. And Paul says, in light of that reality, Timothy, before you and I tag team, we helped each other fan the flames. That's what was happening, right? We were both fanning the flames. But now, Timothy, you're all alone. All alone. Because the church is a train wreck. Fan your flames. Be after it. Why? Because you understand the grace and mercy and peace of God. And you understand the God of those three. And you say, I want that more than anything. I want that warmth. I want that warmth. Because that's the only warmth that's going to keep me alive. Only God will keep me alive. That's it. Fan the flames. I love Paul's picture of fanning the flames because it needs very little explanation. We all know what that means. Even if you've never had to fight a bad fire, you get the idea. It's constant. I remember one time camping, it was really cold out. And I couldn't keep the flame going. I kept on getting lightheaded. couldn't keep it going. And so I went back, and I grabbed one of those. A friend of mine had an um, air mattress with the battery-powered um, battery-powered uh, uh, inflator. I was like, Ree! oh, this is great. Ree! And then it melted. <laughs> and I had to get back down and start blowing again. And I did it all night long, because every time it stopped, it started going out again. And I was freezing. And the picture here is ongoing. Don't ever stop. Keep fanning the flames. Can I just throw this out here real quickly? A devotion is not fanning the flames. What I mean by that is a 15-minute devotion. That's not fanning the flames. A daily bread not fanning the flames. Devotion is like one breath. What that is. Like blow blowing one time into the fire. That's not fanning the flames. Psalm 1. What does he say? But his delight, what? Is in the law of the Lord, and what? In his law he meditates day and night. That's fanning the flames. That's what that is. And that's what Paul's calling us to. He's calling Timothy to. Nobody's helping you fan the flame? That's okay. You know why that's okay? Because you've got the Holy Spirit. You've been given if you're a believer, you've been given the Holy Spirit fan the flames. It's not you've been given the Holy Spirit so you don't do anything. You've been given the Holy Spirit he's made he's taken you from death to life and he's enabled you to what? Right? Fan the flames. He's given you that ability and the wisdom in the Scriptures to fan the flames with the Scriptures. That's the picture Paul calls Timothy. Listen, Timothy, as he starts this whole process, he says, before we get anywhere else, here's your only hope. As you face these difficulties of being all alone and churches in absolute opposition to you and everything you're teaching, and going further and further off the rails all the time, and you're on your own. Paul says, Timothy, you're not alone. Oh, physically, you're alone. You're not alone. Fan of flames. You have the Spirit, you have the truth of the word. Have others ministering along with you and helping you and encouraging you and exhorting you and reminding you of the God of grace, mercy, and peace. Praise the Lord! Enjoy, love it, rejoice, greatest joy, right? You don't fan the flame, fan them. all the time. That's the positive. Then the, the negative comes right afterwards, or the warning comes right afterwards. Verse seven: For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. If you and I are believers, we have the Spirit. Fan the flames because you've been given the Spirit to enable you, to help you, to fan the flames. We work because he works. But, he says in verse 7, For God gave us the Spirit not, that word is very important, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So let me just throw this out here. If you struggle with fear... If you find yourself giving into fear, you know what that means? You've forgotten about the God of grace. God of mercy. God of peace. You've forgotten about grace, mercy, and peace. You struggle with fear and give in to fear, what that means? You're not fanning the flames. You struggle with fear today? By the way, the fear that Paul that Paul is addressing Timothy specifically is very important. Not generic fear. It's fear of ministering to others. That's what he's talking about. Timothy, if you maybe he would describe Timothy as timid. Timothy, you struggle with ministering to other people? You struggle with helping others discover joy in Christ? You struggle with, 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 with laying your life on the line and helping others be captivated by the God of grace, mercy, and peace? God gave you a spirit. He gave you his spirit. And that spirit is not the God of fear. He didn't give you a spirit of fear. So if you fear, and fear is controlling you, and I would add to it, not just towards other believers, but even to unbelievers too, if your fear, the fears you have, are hamstringing you, distracting you, keeping you from exactly what he's talking about here, Understand something. He's saying that's not from the spirit I gave you. So let me just ask you a quick question. If it's not from the spirit God gave you, well, then what spirit is it from? Huh? It's from the spirit of Satan. See, we like to say, yeah, yeah, I know it doesn't honor God, but. No, 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 no. If if fear is keeping me from ministering to other believers, and fear is keeping me from ministering to, to unbelievers, That's not just, well, yeah, I'm not being obedient. He's drawing a contrast here. He's saying he didn't give you a spirit of that, so it must be a different spirit. Now, I'm not saying you're possessed. That's not what I'm saying. I certainly don't believe that Christians can be possessed. I'm not saying that. But remember, we do not fight against what? Flesh and blood. But against principalities and powers, right? So if it's not from the spirit, if it's not being brought to you by the spirit from above, then it must be brought to you from the spirit down below. Fear hamstringing you is is the very definition, or might be not the very definition, but a very definition of the evil one. It is. It's the evil one at work. And if you find yourself controlled by those fears, it means your focus is in all the wrong places. Because it's not from God. And you have forgotten the God of love, I'm sorry, the God of grace, mercy, and peace. He says in verse 7 again, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear. And then the encouraging words. Ready? If you're a believer, hear what he says. He has given you a spirit of power, love, and self-control. That's what he's given you. If you're a believer, if you are saved, this God of grace, mercy, and peace has, by His grace, mercy, and peace, given you a spirit of what of power. You know what that means? He's giving you a spirit more powerful than the other spirit that results in fear, which means you are able to fan the flames. You realize that? That's what He's saying. Not that you can do it because you're so great. You can do it because by God's grace, mercy, and peace, he's given you a spirit enabling you powerfully to fan the flames so there actually will be flames, right? Flames of love of Christ. He didn't give you a spirit of fear, but he gave you a spirit of love. Love for God and love for people to know God. That's that's what the Spirit brings to us. He brings to his children the Spirit. He gives his children a Spirit that is defined by God's love towards the one who first loved us and then outwardly, outwardly towards other children of God. Others that belong to him. Because that's the focus of Second Timothy. That's what he brings to us. So fan the flames. And when you fan the flames, and you fan them by fellowshipping with Jesus, fellowshipping with God in his word, reminding yourself, speaking the truth into your own lives, meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. When we, when we are involved, fellowship with God, you know what happens? We're fanning the flames. And when the, fan, when the, when the flames are fanned, you know what begins to happen? We discover that we have the spirit of power. We discover love. And suddenly, you know what starts to happen, friends? This is really weird. It no longer matters. It no, Hear me carefully on this one. It no longer matters that nobody loves us. Do you realize that? It no longer matters. If everybody hates you, okay. It doesn't matter. Because I'm not called to be loved. I am loved. And I have the spirit of love. I just want to love. You see the difference? That's what happens in a growing way as we fan the flames. Self-control. The idea is he's given us a spirit of self-control. And as we fan the flames by the power of the Holy Spirit, you know what we find ourselves doing? We find ourselves being so satisfied with the God of grace, mercy, and peace that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we begin to do what? Control ourselves. So that these contrary passions, as it were, the contrary worldly desires, as they were, begin to get squashed. Because God has given me a spirit that involves self-control. It's me. It's got to be me. <laughs> my grating voice. And so self-control begins to kick in. That's why Paul says, for example, elsewhere, he says, I even beat my body if necessary. Right? That's what he says. Self-control. Based upon the grace of Mercy and peace that I'm receiving, based upon the spirit that God has given me, that is a spirit of self-control. Based upon the fanning the flames. So my little Timothys and me, gotta ask myself the same question: Are we caught up in fear? Fear, not generally. Fear of ministry? Fear of reminding each other of God's grace, mercy, and peace? Fear of reminding each other of the God of those three? Do we find ourselves in fear of that? Fan the flames. There is incredible hope here. If we have received the Spirit, the hope is that He who began the good work in you will what? Continue to perfect it to the day of Jesus Christ or bring it to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. That's our confidence. You know what that means? Here's what it means. If you have been saved, the reality is you will fan your flames. You will. You will. Because the love of Christ controls you. You will. Now, at the same time, I hear Hebrews saying to each one of us, We've had enough time for our sin, haven't we? We've had enough time to fan the wrong flames, as it were. We've had enough time to dink around and all the other stuff. And the writer of Hebrews says, now's the time. Without fanning the flames. It's time. It's time. By the power of the Holy Spirit. If you have received God's grace, it's time for us to confidently fan the flames because he's given us a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. And as we fan the flames, we are going to discover the greatest joy we can possibly imagine. And you know what's going to happen? I'm convinced we're going to find out we're not all alone. Right? Just like Elijah thought he was all alone, and God said what? No, you're not. There's still others I preserve. You'll discover you're not all alone. You may feel that way. You're not. There are others. And you'll start to fan one another's flames. And you'll find your greatest joy in Christ. Whether you're all alone, or there'll be others. You'll find the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of the glory and grace. Because that's what God does. That's what He's after. Can the flame. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for this familial text. Help us. Because we so often grow cold, we so often think it's hopeless. We so often deceive ourselves into thinking, if only this, or if only that, or if only something else, that everything will be different. And the only way it's different is if we recognize and remember and meditate on you. Help us to carefully dissect our lives and recognize the God of this world, the spirit of this world, and the spirit of God. Help us to fan the flames. Help us to be after it today while it's still today. Because we want you. And we want to live in the greatest joy we possibly can live in for your glory.